I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. This is basically part three on a little mini-series that Jesus has been teaching uh, us through. Um, And uh, we've been calling this mini-series True Faith. And uh, this comes on the heels of Jesus' uh, cleansing of the temple, his purifying, his deconstructing of the temple. And one of the things that we're, we're learning is that Jesus comes back to the temple after deconstructing the temple, and he, he's going to reconstruct uh, this, his church, uh, and, and he's going to do it through his teaching. And so here Jesus is pointing us to what true faith looks like. He said, this is not what true faith looks like. And he pointed to the temple system, the way the religious leaders had made an abomination of faith. And now he's going to lead us into what true faith looks, looks like. So this is part three, and, and uh, my sermon title is True Faith is Transformed. True Faith is Transformed. So I wanted to start by, by posing a question. Uh, and the question is, you know, what do you think about the clothes that you wear? You know, I was, I was wondering if there might be two camps, you know, um, I mean, evidently clothes are somewhat important. Jared already mentioned my clothes. Evidently, I wear Hawaiian shirts and flip-flops a lot. I think it's justified, though. It's very hot in, in these parts. Um, I will go back to my flannel and boots come winter. Um, but, but how many of us would, would say that we're kind of like clothes people? Would you mind raising your hand? Like, you could go like this if you're a clothes person, like, the way you dress is like important to you. There you go. No shame. No shame in it. That's fine. How many of you are just like, I roll up out of bed. You're just glad that I'm here right now. You know, my wife made me shave and put on a t-shirt. Yeah. So, you know, uh, anybody ever heard the phrase? I, I had a coach, I guess, at one point tell me, you know, uh, that the uniform, you know, it's important. And the way you put it on is important because if you, if you look good, you feel good, then you'll play good, Right. But sometimes we, we tend to look at clothes as being an external thing. And uh, in this story, Jesus seems to think that the clothes are really important. So it raises some interesting questions. What's up with the clothes, Jesus? Why are the clothes such an important uh, part of this parable? And uh, so in this parable, uh, we, we see a picture of a man who shows up to a wedding feast. Uh, can I just say, I, I love weddings big fan of weddings. You know, when I was a kid, weddings were just um, cake, punch, and mints. That was like, that's what I remember weddings. And now we, everyone has like dinners. At, and, and some of them, like Jason and Allie, had tacos at their wedding. It's freaking awesome. Love it. You know what I mean? So anyways, we're talking about a wedding feast. It got me a little bit excited. Um, so there's this wedding feast, right? It's, it's fit for a king, but then there's this one guy who refuses to adorn himself with the traditional wedding garments that are offered him uh, by his host, the king. And it, it makes us wonder, you know, like, does God care about how we dress? Is that what Jesus is saying in this parable? I mean, I thought God cared most about what was on the inside. 
How come he all of a sudden seems to care about what's on the outside? How come this man with the wrong clothes on is uh, banished from the feast? Like he's not just scolded. He's banished. He's thrown out into the utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Feels a little bit severe. And anybody feel like telling Jesus to chill the heck out? You know, I mean, man, um, what, what's so important about this guy's clothes? There's got to be something about the clothes, right? Can we all agree there's got to be something behind just the clothes? It's got to be about more than just the clothes. So let's take a look at uh, the question of right dress and more as we dig into this parable uh, together this morning. Uh, so, yeah, like I mentioned already, we do find ourselves at this climactic point of tension, Last week, uh, our friend David came and really pointed us to the fact that this is the ultimate point of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. In the story, again, we'll be in the book of Matthew for another half year, but there's only a few days left in the story of Jesus. His life is about to come to the end. He's come to Jerusalem. And, and up to this point, I mean, he's had a lot of sparring with the religious leaders, you know, guys like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But here, uh, he gets very direct. Where he's been indirect, he is now uh, very direct. He's cleansed the temple. I mean, imagine, this has just happened. Jesus walked into the temple and just overturned everything. This is a big deal. He completely deconstructed the temple. And, and as I said, now he's back. He's returned the next day. And this is where we find him teaching or reconstructing what he wants his church to be. He's reconstructing the idea of what true faith looks like. So in this parable, I think we get an incredibly uh, vivid picture of who God is and who we are, or what God is like and what we can be like. And uh, rather than going verse by verse, line by line today, I'm, I'm going to present us with uh, the characteristics of the king that we read about in this story, who, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I think clearly represents God the Father. And then also, um, not only are we going to look at who God is or what God is like, we're going to look at what we're like, what humans are like, at least in, a, in the form of rejection that we see portrayed in this story. Because if we're honest, you know, sometimes we reject the invitation of the king. Finally, I will finish with uh, a little bit of application about how we can adorn ourselves with the wedding garment that the story points towards. So stick with me here. I think we're going to get an answer to this difficult question. Why is Jesus so concerned with this guy's clothes? So let's start with um, the characteristics of the king. Now, in order to understand what's happening in this story, I think you have to understand that the ancient practice would have been similar to ours, I think, to send two invitations for an event. How many of you had a wedding and what do you send out first before your invitations? Save the date, right? You're not asking for responses. You're just telling people this is happening. You don't even have to give all the details. All you're asking people to do is to save the date. So uh, in this uh, parable, it says uh, that he sent his servants to invite those who had been invited. So there's already been an invitation given. Now we're hearing the story about the second invitation, which would be to say, hey, everything's ready, now you could come. That's probably a little bit different than our culture would be, but in ancient culture, they sent that first invitation and you were just kind of supposed to have yourself ready to go at a moment's notice. 
And so anyways, this is really, there's two parts. There's a first invitation to save the date, and now we're hearing about the second invitation, which is that it's all ready. So let's take a look at four characteristics of the king, or four characteristics of God that we see in this story. The first uh, characteristic, and this is one of my favorite characteristics about God, and that's that he's pursuing. The king uh, pursues. He sends his servants And who are these servants? Well, these servants are probably Old Testament prophets, people like John the Baptist, even Jesus himself, future apostles to come. Anyone who would go and tell people about the kingdom of God are his servants. And and this is also great. The king who pursues his invitation is not to like a funeral. It's not to something. It's not even like a business meeting that he's inviting people to. He's inviting people to a great feast. God is a God who prepares the feast. And I think that sometimes, uh, maybe it's Western Stoicism, I really don't know, but sometimes the kingdom of God has not really felt like a party. Do you know what I'm saying? But, but the God of the universe is a God of feasts. He's full of joy, and he invites us. He pursues us. His pursuit is so important. Notice that the guests don't have to find him. He finds them. He comes after them. The God of the Bible pursues, and he's after you. If you're here this morning, I would just suggest that God is after you. He's after your heart. Maybe that's why you walked into this place. God is after you. He's pursuing. We've already read about the God who would leave the 99 to find the one. Sometimes we can feel lost and aimless. God is a God who pursues, extending his invitation. He calls, another word for pursues or invites. He calls, but then he he leaves his guests, or at least his invitees, with a choice to come or not to come. There is no coercion. You're not forced to come to the banquet. This is an interesting picture uh, of what we see in Scripture. So I would say it like this, that we see in Scripture a tension between God's sovereign willing, his sovereign power and control throughout the universe, and the human responsibility that we're given by God who extends to us free will. He calls, but he leaves us with a choice. The second thing we see about God in this parable is that the king is prepared. He's totally prepared. He's done all the food prep. When I, um, I'm going to embarrass Oscar right now. This, the spirit just brought this to me. So <laughs> Oscar invited me over. It's like that one time you invited me over, right, Oscar? He's like, he, I suggested going to Frosty King because I wanted a soda fries. And Oscar was like, that's not righteous. A pastor cannot eat a soda fries. So Oscar's like, I'll make you a steak. And I came, I showed up. The table was ready, huh, Adi? He had it all ready, right? And this is how God is. I'm sorry, I just compared you to God, Oscar. You should feel happy. I don't have to ask for permission to do that. You get the idea that the feast is totally prepared. And who does the preparing? Does he ask? He doesn't even ask anybody else to help with the preparing, you know? God is a God who does all the preparing. He, he, he gets the oxen. I was like, what does oxen taste like? I don't even know what oxen actually is. The fattened cattle. I'm pretty sure fattened cattle taste better than the skinny cattle. But he says everything is ready. Everything is ready. God has done everything. We're going to talk more about this tension between God's sovereign control and our human responsibility, but you got to hear this. 
God has prepared everything that needs to be prepared in eternity. And he just bids us come and receive. This is amazing news. We can so easily get wrapped up into this idea of trying to earn favor with God. Bringing our best set of brownies to the feast. Do you know what I'm talking about? Bringing our little donation to put in the basket for quesadilla gorilla. The God of the universe has prepared the entire feast. It's ready. It's ready, he says. Remember, the second invitation. I've already told you to save the date. The time is now. So we have a picture of final judgment. But it's almost as if mom has rung the dinner bell. Is that still a thing? In my house, the kids help with dinner. Anyways, in in God's house, he prepares everything. The dinner bell has been rung. He says, come. He does all the work. We just show up and enjoy. God is also, in this parable, I believe, persistent. Are these behind me now? Cool. Good job, Gunnar and Caleb. He's persistent. Does he get discouraged or give up on us when the first answer is no? Not at all. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God. His love never gives up. His love never fails, right? You guys know the song. It never gives up. It never fails. It's reckless. Have you read that book, uh, Prodigal God? I think Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God. He, He retells the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal can mean lavish or reckless in his love. This is the love of God. It's reckless. His love never gives up. The story of the Bible is actually a story of how God's love never gives up on his people. So many times in the story of mankind, God could have just been like, man, enough. But no, his love never gives up. We see it over and over again. The people of God, us, if we're honest. Old Testament, New Testament, modern day. We reject him. We live our own way. We worship other gods, even. We make other things the main thing. And yet God's love is persistent. We can be fickle, but God is resolute. This is what we mean when we say he's faithful. He's a firm foundation. You can bank your life on him. His love is persistent. His love is also. Those three things sounded really happy. The fourth P is not as happy as the first three Ps. God is also punishing He's persistent, he's patient, but there will come a time where his punishment will be reigned on all evil. This is what we should expect of a God who is holy and just. Think of whatever you think of when you think of the most evil offender in our world. And I don't know if it's the child trafficker or if it's the the person selling drugs on the corner or if it's the the man who beats his wife. I, I don't know what you think of when you think of the most vile offender Can you imagine a God who did not punish that type of wickedness? God's punishment has to be in place in order for justice to rule. His love is not incompatible with his justice. It's in his love that he brings about justice. So we see punishing. Make no mistake about it. The king has pursued us. He's prepared a table before us. He's not taking no for an answer. He's persistent. His love is unrelenting, but he will not be mocked. 
He is no pushover. The king of the universe is soaked in justice. And sermons on the justice or, or the wrath of God can feel harsh. We live in a world, even a Christian climate, in which we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. Can we just talk about God's love? We can't talk about the love of God without talking about his punishment for injustice and wickedness. If you've been wronged, (laughs) I almost had you raise your hands. Everyone's hand would be raised. I'm telling you, you can trust in a God who will make every wrong right. Wrong is punished by this good king. So take heart, any of you, all of, all of you who have encountered injustice, God will bring his wrath upon the wickedness in the world. This is good news. I'm gonna, I smile when I talk about it. God's wrath against injustice is good news. I believe that part of the reason we see this cry for social justice currently in our time, do whatever, I, I'm not trying to start any controversy, but I think there's a desire in the human heart to see justice brought. And that desire, I believe, comes from a holy God who also loves justice. I'm also super thankful that it's this good king who enacts justice on our behalf. The justice of the world, though he's invited me to participate, ultimately at the day of judgment, the justice of the world will be brought by this good, loving king who's patient and pursuing, who goes again over and over and over. This is good news that he's the one judging, not me at least. Maybe some of you are nicer than me, I don't know. Next, I want to talk about how we see in this passage four different ways that we as humans can reject God. So we've seen the character of the king with the four P's, and now we're going to see four D's because, of course, they have to be the same letter. I don't know if I'm maniacal, maybe OCD. All the points have to have the same first letter or rhyme or something cute like that. Anyways, here we go. So the four ways that we see humans rejecting the king in this parable. First of all, we see the good old-fashioned direct rejection. These are people who tell it like it is, right? Verse 3, it says specifically that, that his first servant's call was refused. No, thank you. And it's not that the invitation was doubted or unheard. These people heard the invitation And they clearly and directly refused to come to the feast. There are some who just want nothing to do with God's kingdom. And this may not feel like you. I mean, I don't know. You're here on a Sunday morning. This is likely not you this morning. But it's certainly true of a culture whose heart is hard. Just direct at face value refusal to come to the party. It's really kind of sad if you think about it. You know, imagine a wedding feast, tacos, all the drinks. Nope, I don't need that. Dang. Anyways, maybe you found yourself uh, in this spot before. It's also possible. Maybe some of you have a story where that used to be you. And then you got a right view of God. You got a real picture of the feast. And his love transformed your heart. And now you're aware of God. You're eager to come. The second way that we often respond uh, to this good king is through distraction. We respond distractedly. This is often me. I, 
I like have to have a pen in my hand if I'm reading. Otherwise, I'll just like, anybody else like that or is that just me? Okay, only one person. Thanks, Jose, for shaking your head, man. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So, so check this out. The, the patient pursuing father, he, he, he responds to the refusal, the direct refusal by sending more servants out into uh, the streets. And uh, he's, they're, they're now gathering guests that have been invited to his banquet. And, and it says that these guests paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. They seem like good things. You should pay attention to your field, probably. You probably got to pay attention to your business. But it's a good reminder that sometimes the devil doesn't harden our hearts so much as he busies our days. These guests just had other things to do, and they paid no attention to the invitation to the great feast of the king. I apologize if I've said this quote one time too many, but I'm not really sorry. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. That's what I mean to say. This is a C.S. Lewis quote. I think it applies perfectly. It would seem, C.S. Lewis says that, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Pleased to give ourselves to our work, to give ourselves to our relationships, to give ourselves to our video games, our money, our wealth, our material possessions, our sports, our fandom. Distracted. The king comes and says, I got a wedding feast. Who wants to come? Nah, I'm good. I got work to do. I got personal business. Again, these aren't bad things, but when anything becomes a God thing, it becomes an idol. And I think that that's the actual and literal description of idolatry in the Bible. When we put something at a higher ranking, when we put something else above God, we turn a good thing into a God thing. It demonstrates the orientation of our worship. Did you know that worship is not just the words that you sing on a Sunday morning? Worship is the thing that you orient your life around. What are you orienting your life around? I feel a little convicted. These invitees, they they weren't rebellious. They were just caught up in other interests, and so they paid no attention. Thirdly, we learn about our response that some reject Jesus destructively. Verse 6, it says that some with hard hearts receive the invitation to the banquet and respond with malice. What do they do to his servants? They kill his servants. Clearly, I think Jesus is referring to the treatment of the Old Testament prophets. Remember, John the Baptist has literally just has his head removed And all who follow Jesus moving forward are about to endure persecution. Remember all of his followers, most of his followers at least, from what we know of history, died as martyrs. So this is not, this is both a retelling of what has happened and a forecast of what is to happen for those 
who will be servants of the king. And, and on its face, this response is almost impossible to believe. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, who gets so mad at receiving an invitation to a feast that they turn and kill the messenger? Feels a bit extreme. I think the, uh, the hyperbole here is, uh, is likely intended to convict us. I mean, after all, you know, the, the people have been mistreating the prophets for centuries. The people that Jesus is, is talking to. It's almost like Jesus would say to them, like the prophet Nathan said to David when he told him and convicted him of his sin with Bathsheba. You could look it up in, uh, is it First or Second Samuel 12? You are that man. You're the one in the story. The religious leaders have to be thinking like, oh man, we've been mistreating violently God's messengers for centuries. And, it, and, and hey, we just have to understand it's painful, but it's true. And Jesus has taught more than once already that those of us who follow Jesus and become his messengers will face persecution and the destructive forces of the world. Of course, we also know that the ultimate story ends in victory, but in this world, we're promised there will be troubles. So some respond destructively, super violently. The first three kind of make a lot of sense, you know. Um, it's, the, it's the last one that doesn't seem to make as much sense. The fourth way that uh, we see people respond to the invitation of the king in this story is um, decidedly. Here's what I mean. Decidedly, I think, is a D word that means stubborn. Stubborn. See, most of us aren't killing off preachers. I mean, raise your hand if you've killed a preacher recently. Cool. I was about to kick somebody out of the church if a hand had gone up. Thank, we got Devin in the back to take care of people like that. I feel so protected when Devin's here. Anyways, sorry. I'm getting off track a little bit today. Yeah, most of us aren't killing off preachers, are we? We're not killing off people who proclaim the gospel. Um, in fact, I think we can, we can tend to see ourselves as believers. I mean, after all, you guys are the ones here this morning, sitting in the rows, singing the songs. Many or most of us have professed faith in Jesus, and that's why you're here. But this, this parable, it goes further. It goes further. It's not just about those who directly reject the kingdom. It's not just about those who are too distracted to enjoy the kingdom. It's not just those who are destructive of God's messengers. It's also about those who have heard and have said, I'll be there, and then showed up with stubbornness and an unwillingness to respect. I think if we're honest, this fourth type is most likely the one that fits us best. I can tell you, I can tell you that, I, that I do have a sense that God's specific call on my life is to come into a town full of people who think they already know Jesus and preach the good news. I think that's the story of my life, having grown up in the church, not really getting it, you know, until a point where I was quite a bit older and then being hit by the good news of Jesus in a new way. I mean, a lot of us are, if we're honest, are unbelieving believers. Do you know what I'm saying? We've said yes to Jesus. We profess faith in Jesus. Maybe we've even been baptized. And yet we're like this guy in, in, at the banquet who shows up 
without his wedding garments on. It's almost like, yeah, I'm here, but oh, wedding garments? No thanks, I'm good. I'm good. I think that's the motto that drives this type of rejection. And this rejection, it's difficult to diagnose in a sense because it, it starts as acceptance. You know, I mean, and we've been taught from an early age, it's faith that saves us. It's not works that saves us. You could nod your head with me if you believe that that's true. I believe that that's true. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace. We're not saved because we've earned it. Thank the good Lord. We're not saved because we had to earn it. But in verse 10, it says that, so the servants went out into the streets. They gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. This wasn't a gathering of only good people. This was a gathering of the bad as well as the good. The point is that nobody had earned the position. No one had earned the right to be there. And the wedding hall, it says, was filled with guests. This is good. The hall is filled. It's very good that the hall is full. But then there's a but. Is that verse 11? Megan was talking about the yets in the Bible. I'm here to tell you that the buts in the Bible are really important. Verse 11 starts with one of these buts. You see, there's, there's something wrong about this guy because he's decided not to wear the wedding garments provided to all guests. So let me take you a little context here. See, a good king here has not only provided the food and the feast, but as would have been custom, he would have also provided wedding garments. This is really appropriate, especially if you're inviting in a bunch of street people. It would be very generous of the host to provide clothes so that there was equality in the room. Everyone was clean. Everyone had the same thing on. Everyone had the same standing. This was common. So here we have a picture of a bunch of guests who have come as they are, but have received new clothes, these wedding garments and have chosen to come as they are, but not stay that way, put on the clothes, except this one guy who wanted to come to the feast and continue to stay as he was. And the king is not happy, not at all. He says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And then he calls him friend. I love that. Even when the king gets upset, he still refers to the man as friend. We should probably see God in that picture, the friend who's upset. And uh, the man, it says, was speechless. Verse 13, look what the king does. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Dang. Like, what is happening here? This guy showed up to a free invitation, and all of a sudden, just because he doesn't have the right clothes on, he gets kicked out into the streets, like a serious kicking out. He got tied hand and foot, thrown outside into the darkness, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't even know what weeping and gnashing of teeth completely means, but it sounds very severe, very severe. Clearly, this is about more than just clothes. Can we all agree? This is where every metaphor falls apart if you take it too literally. You get what I'm saying? Clearly, there's a deeper meaning here behind uh, the wedding garments. They're not just clothes. This isn't like a guy who showed up with his exterior in the wrong position. 
In fact, commentators seem to agree that, that the wedding garments in this story represent some, some type of personal righteousness or faith in action. Call it obedience. Call it uh, actions that represent respect, right? And kids, you know this, respect is demonstrated, right? You don't just say, I, I respect you, and then not do what your parents ask you to do. You demonstrate your respect through action. Well, this man has showed up to the wedding. He's been given a beautiful set of clothes, we could assume, and he's chosen to disrespect the king by not obeying, by not wearing the wedding garment. See, the king is expecting that the invitation to the wedding feast would result in some sort of transformation. You can imagine, again, these street people, right? I mean, the first guests didn't come. These were probably the the uppity people. So now we've moved on to the street people. Imagine how they would have shown up. And the king has given them uh, wedding garments. So what do they mean for us and, and how we respond to God's kingdom invitation? It's, it's almost as if like we, we can come freely to the wedding feast, but we have to come rightly. And so the question that it raises, at least in my head, is like if there's conditions on our coming, well, then how is the kingdom based on grace. How is it that the good and the bad are all invited? So I believe that the garments in this story are are designed to show us what personal transformation looks like. Look, Look closely. All the guests are freely invited to a feast that has been completely offered, not based on their merit, right? Remember the good and the bad all got to come. But it was based on the king's pursuing love. And as they show up, they're all putting on the wedding garments. Why? Because the king asked them to put on the wedding garments. Except for this one guy who inexplicably is deciding not to put on the wedding garments. He's deciding not to be adorned with splendor. Look, in this kingdom, it's very clear. We come as we are. We come as we are, but... We do not, if we have true faith, stay as we are. Why? Because faith, true faith, transforms us. True faith transforms. I believe the wedding garments are pictures of this transformation, the transformation that takes place when we truly receive the free grace of God. What what kind of king would he be if he did not transform us? It's great to be received as we are, but what kind of king would we worship if he left us as we are? I mean, do you want to stay as you are? Is that what you want? Right? None of us are here because we want to stay as we are. Aren't we all here because we want to receive the transforming power of God? This is why we're here. We want to be transformed, but this guy shows up to the wedding feast, the come-as-you-are invitation and he refuses. He's stubborn. He refuses to be transformed. <clears throat> so how does this apply? Or how do we apply it? How do we do this? How do we adorn ourselves in splendor? I think that's the language used in Isaiah 61. How do we do this? How do we dress ourselves for the feast? 
Instead of giving you my list of what to do or how to do it, I wanted to just read what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. I have this behind me on the screen. This is Ephesians 4, 17 through 520. Bear with me. This is a full chapter of reading. I'll try to read it expressively like a good elementary school teacher would. See, Jesus used parables, uh, but Paul used metaphors. And the metaphor that Paul uses for those of us who have received God's call, he uses a metaphor as new life. He says in verse 17, again, Ephesians 4, verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles or the unbelievers do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which, what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, of God, and of God, I'm sorry. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient, just like the man in the story. Therefore do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father, 
for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe this is Paul's vision for what it looks like to put on the wedding garment. This is what life looks like when you've been transformed by the grace of God. This is not how you earn your way to an invitation. This is not how you earn your way into the kingdom. This is how you respond when you've been brought inside the kingdom to the wedding feast by a good king who pursues you persistently. Look, in the kingdom of God, sinners become saints. Come as you are, but do not stay as you are. Receive grace freely and be transformed. This isn't so much the demand of the gospel. This is the promise of the gospel. It's not just demand. It's promise. Transformation. You can be changed by God's grace. Some of us walk around with our old life as if it's actually leading to life. You know what I'm saying? We, we keep messing around with the same sin over and over and over. No matter how much destruction comes, we, we act as if it's just a little white lie or just a, a tiny little bad habit. Your old way of doing life, just like the guest in his old clothes, it's not the way to live in the kingdom of God. It's totally unfitting. The king of the kingdom has brought you in. He's put on his clothes. Dress yourself in the splendor of the king. I think this is a call to righteousness. This is a call to transformational living. Some of us, some of us need to do some laundry this morning. We're walking around in old clothes. We're, uh, we're living an old way of living an unredeemed way of being. And the invitation to the banquet is an invitation to a new way of being human, a transformed way of living. The old has gone and the new has come for those of us who are in Jesus. My invitation to you this morning is to come and be made new. Hey, we're so glad you joined us. But don't forget to stay connected, either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.